Well, our scripture reading for our sermon this morning is coming from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the first psalm in the book of Psalms. And when you look at this psalm in context, both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really function as the foundation or the thematic psalms for the entire book of Psalms. Um, I often liken it to the genetic code of the Psalter. Uh, Psalm 1 is about the blessed man and the blessed way. Uh, The way that the blessed man lives so that he might be happy in God as contrasted with the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 is about the blessed king and how those nations that bow down to the blessed king are blessed. So Psalm 1 is about the the blessed man, and ultimately Psalm 2 is about the blessed king and the blessed nations who submit to the king. And, and when you read through the Psalter, you see that uh, these two themes really uh, weave throughout the Psalms. You see uh, different angles of those themes throughout the Psalter. But again, this morning we are looking at Psalm 1. And the title of my sermon is The Path to True Happiness. As we look at the blessed man here, we see the path to true happiness laid out before us. So give now your attention to the reading of the Word of God. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Thus far for the reading of the word of God. May he bless it to us. The most important thing in life is to be happy. I'm sure that's a phrase or a general idea that all of us have heard at some point coming from our culture and from various voices within our culture. Back when I was in school, uh, teachers, they would often drill that into our heads that money isn't what's so important in our future careers. No, what's important is that we find happiness and personal fulfillment in whatever we choose to do. I think it's fair to say that while other cultures may value things like honor, family, or loyalty as being the the chief virtues of their culture, ours is a culture that chiefly values personal happiness as a goal or as a virtue in life. And indeed, if we look around us, we can easily see that the quest for happiness, for personal happiness, is really the driving force behind things like pop psychology, behind things like 
uh, the use of uh, drugs, both legally and illegally, as well as all of the do-it-yourself spirituality that we find in our society. So also the rampant materialism that characterizes our culture, uh, this is also a symptom of this quest for happiness as a chief virtue. And it's not too difficult to uh, sympathize with this quest for happiness, because honestly, who of us likes being unhappy? Well, if we are honest, none of us do, right? You see, as human beings, we we have this built-in drive for happiness. Even if you aren't from a culture that worships personal happiness and comfort and insists on it as we do, still it's a human instinct, a drive uh, to seek out happiness in one form or another. And you see, the Scriptures tell us that we were actually made for this. We were made for happiness or blessedness, as the psalmist says. Not as an end in and of itself, but as the effect of pursuing something much greater than ourselves. Namely, union and communion with the infinite and eternal being whom we call God. Happiness is to come from knowing God as your God. And the psalmist here in these six verses, these six opening verses to the Psalter, he lays out the path to such happiness, or the path to such blessedness, as he calls it. We find here in this first psalm, uh, the basic idea that happiness is only truly found in God and in His Word. And so therefore, we as believers must abide in His Word And we must seek to live by His precepts if we wish to be truly happy in this life and especially in the life to come. As the psalm opens up saying right there in verse 1, blessed or happy is the man who does these things and who lives in this way. And so in order to examine this text, we are going to look at and consider three things. We're going to look at the way or the path to such blessedness. We are going to look at the picture of such blessedness and all that it entails, according to the psalmist. And then we are going to look at the confidence or the assurance that gives rise to this whole manner of life. So those three things, the way, the picture, and the assurance of true happiness is what we're going to be looking at as we go through this psalm. And so first then, let's examine the path as it's presented here. And we see here that that first and foremost, the blessed life is actually a path of resistance or a life of separation from certain people and from certain influences. Look there at verse 1 with me. He says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So notice there how the happy man, or the blessed man, as he is called, is described as a man who spends his whole life resisting the pathway to sin. He doesn't live a life of ease, 
He doesn't live a life of laxity, but he lives a life of resistance. And so the psalmist begins there by describing what this man doesn't do, or the kind of man that he doesn't aspire to be. As the text says, he turns from the counsel, from the path, and from the seat of the wicked. And again, the idea is that this is a constant effort of his, that it's an ongoing battle that he's engaged with. And as we're going to see as we flesh this out further, what this path is that he is avoiding is the path that leads to apostasy or the path that leads to a turning from God as the sole source of true happiness and blessedness. So when we think about this in relation to the Christian life, uh, verse 1 isn't referring so much uh, to the reality of our indwelling sin. It isn't referring to the fact that we all have a sinful nature which often causes us to to slip up, as as Paul says in, in Romans 7 and in other places. No, this is describing the world that is seeking to lure us into a self-conscious commitment to sin, into a lifestyle of sin and laxity towards sin. And again, the blessed man is self-consciously resisting each stage of it as as it's presented to him. And I want you to notice just the, the gradual development of this path as it's described in the text. There's this negative progression And how the psalmist describes both the actions which are taken on this path, as well as the persons who are walking down this path. First, he describes those who walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Those who walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, Now, the Hebrew word for ungodly there is rasha, which describes a person who is particularly wicked or someone who's of a maybe a criminal mindset is how we can describe it. Uh, So this is someone who is intent on breaking or at least ignoring the law of God. Again, sort of like how a common criminal is intent on breaking the civil laws. And so he says that the man is blessed who doesn't listen to such people or walk in their counsel. It's something that they are communicating and and seeking to persuade him to enter into. And you see, the psalmist says this because this is actually the first step in committing yourself to a pattern of sin. You first have to listen to and consider ungodly advice and then you have to take it to heart so that you begin to walk in it. Uh, Think of Adam and Eve and how they fell into original sin. How did it begin? It all began by them listening to and entertaining the serpent and his ungodly counsel. Remember that the serpent told them that they would be happier and better off, that they would be freer, which always has the promise of happiness behind it, if they would simply turn from God and turn from his law. You see, this is how the whole tragedy of history actually began. By listening to the counsel of the ungodly. By listening to the counsel of a fallen angel. I'm sure in your own life, when you think of times where maybe you've fallen into sin, or into a pattern of sin, didn't it often begin by first listening to the wrong people and giving ear to them? Oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Right? 
Oh, it's just a little bit of sin. It's just blowing off steam. We're all human. Or maybe you watch something on TV or on your smartphones. Or maybe uh, you listen to something that's ungodly. And, And what does it do to you if you keep listening and watching? Well, it desensitizes you, right? It it makes sin seem enticing. Or at least like it's really no big deal. You see, sin, a pattern of sin, usually begins by listening to the wrong message. It begins by listening to the advice of the ungodly. It always begins with, with, again, ungodly thinking, which arises from ungodly counsel, one way or another. And you see, underneath it all is, again, always that assumption that you will be happier, that you will be healthier, and that you will be better off if you would just turn from God and from His law. And so, brothers and sisters, and children especially, when you hear those voices, whether it comes from uh, people or from friends or from the culture in general, you need to plug your ear to those voices. Uh, This means that that we need to be careful, again, with what we watch on TV or with what we expose ourselves to on our phones. And we need to be careful even with the kind of music that we listen to. You see, ungodly counsel doesn't always come through a personal conversation. Hey, come along with me into sin. No, in our modern age, it often comes through mass media. And right, those voices can become ubiquitous at times. And so, looking at the psalm here, we see that first, uh, the happy person, the blessed person, is one who turns away from ungodly counsel. They plug their ears to it. However, second, uh, we see that as this progresses, uh, this ungodly counsel, the next step is that it then proceeds into ungodly action. Uh, The text describes those who then stand in the path of, of sinners. And the word that is used for sinners there, that's the word in Hebrew, kata, which describes those who have fallen short, those who have uh, missed the mark, those who have gone astray. So those who stand in the path of sinners are those who have now left the blessed path and they have now placed their feet in the path of ungodliness. They are now walking, standing in the path with the ungodly. They've been persuaded and they've moved over. Again, this this doesn't describe here just a minor slip-up or a giving in to temptation followed by repentance. No, this this is a self-conscious commitment or a lifestyle either of sins of omission or commission, of determination or laxity. Uh, This person says to himself, I've heard that happiness and pleasure can be found in these ungodly ways, and I now believe that it can be found in these ungodly ways, and so now I'm going to walk along this path. I'm going to pursue this path of worldliness and ungodliness. And so they go off and they start that inappropriate relationship. Or they give themselves over to a a pattern of addiction. Again, all because they now believe that, that true life and true contentment can be found in doing those things. And this is why those who are committed to sin continue to engage with it, even if it's making their lives miserable, because they're walking by faith. They're walking by a false faith. 
They have firmly come to believe in their heart of hearts that at the end of their path, they're going to find what they are looking for. And so that is the second step on the road to apostasy. They begin to stand in the way and walk in the ways of sin. Again, this doesn't describe just a temporary uh, slip-up, though that will turn into a pattern if it doesn't immediately uh, come followed up with repentance. No, this describes a manner of life. They are walking in the way of sinners. They are standing in the path in solidarity with sinners. However, third, the psalmist then describes those who, quote, sit in the seat of the scornful. They sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, in the ancient world, those who were seated, that was usually a symbolic action that signified authority. So, right, when a king was sitting on his throne or when a judge was sitting on his bench of judgment, uh, that's when you were truly understanding that they were an authority. They're doing their kingly thing. They're doing their judge thing when they're seated in that place. And so the scorner here is depicted as someone who is his own authority. He is depicted as someone who is committed to his own sense of autonomy. And he mocks those who live otherwise, especially those who are walking the path of blessedness. Of course, this is what Adam and Eve were promised. And it's what they were seeking when they fell. The serpent said to them, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, he said that you will sit in the seat of judgment. You will call the shots. You will be an authority if you follow me in this rebellion. And so this is how the psalmist describes this final disposition of rebellion. It's a cynical seating in authority. The seat of the mockers, as he calls it. And I'm sure that we've all met people like this before. Uh, This is usually the mentality of hard-hearted atheism and paganism. It's the mentality of many voices in our culture that are uh, behind the whole deconstruction movement and the whole expressive individualistic movement that Carl Truman and others have spoken of. Those are movements that refuse to conform to any external authority outside of them, outside of being true to yourself. And again, there's often that hard-hearted, cynical approach uh, to the things of God, to matters of religion, and especially uh, to the gospel and to the word of God. But of course, again, many famous atheists also, also exhibit this very same mentality. Think of, again, men like Richard Dawkins, or there was that comedian decades ago, uh, George Carlin, very hard-hearted in his atheism and how he would mock the faith. But if we are honest with ourselves, deep down this is what we are all like in our sinful nature apart from the grace of God. We are all prone to this desire for autonomy and to go our own way. But again, the person that is described here is committed to this mentality. They are given over to it because ultimately they have nothing left. They've sought out happiness apart from God. They've made it all about themselves. And so, all that they are now left with is their own hardened, cynical attitude. This is the path of sin and what it leads to. Hard-hearted apostasy. And again, it's what the godly man is avoiding. So let's now look at the effects of it. 
the effects of going down this path. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. The psalmist says, uh, the ungodly, so he's now contrasting this with the way of blessedness that we will consider in a moment. But he says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, So you see there uh, how the way of sinners ultimately leads to two things according to the psalmist. It leads to personal instability and it leads to personal guilt. In other words, it leads to the opposite of the very happiness that they were seeking and going the way that they were going. Uh, The psalmist describes them there as being like chaff or dried grain that the wind can easily scatter. Again, this describes someone who is unstable. It describes someone with an unstable mind, with with unstable emotions. Now, just to be clear here, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean, the psalmist isn't saying that everybody who has mental issues or emotional issues is that way uh, because of personal sin. That's not the point of the text here. Rather, the point is that those who who seek their life and who seek their happiness in something other than God, uh, they end up becoming morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so that then affects everything about them. You see, when you center your life on your circumstances, when you center your life on some fleeting emotion, or especially on the empty pleasures of sin, you are likewise liable to become just as empty and just as fleeting as those things are. You become like chaff that the wind can scatter away. Or as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, all of life becomes like vapor, like vanity. In Dante's Inferno, there's this famous scene where he enters into a chamber of hell and he sees those who have been given over to a life of adultery throughout their life on earth. And he says that they are forever suspended mid-air in this pit, being blown around by the wind so that they never touch the ground, so that they never touch terra firma again. And his metaphor there is, is clear, that this represents their lusts, which they allowed themselves to be blown around by throughout their life. And so he pictures that that's what's going to be true of them for all eternity. It's the same picture that we see here. It's a picture of where sin and rebellion will ultimately lead to a life of instability and to a life of meaningless with no solid ground beneath you. The ungodly are unstable and so therefore they are ultimately unhappy. However, they are also racked with guilt. As the text says, they cannot stand in the judgment nor even congregate with the righteous. In other words, they feel out of place before God's righteousness. They they, they have no confidence as they gather together in the sacred assembly. They have that internal dread that all of this is not going to end well for them. That's what we call guilt. the, The sense in your conscience that it's not going to end well for you. As well as Uh, The fear of being exposed. That's what we call shame. Again, think of Adam and Eve when they covered themselves after they sinned. That's the same image here. These people cannot stand with the righteous. They have that sense of shame and of being exposed. 
But this is where the path of sinners leads to, to personal instability and to the internal pain of a wounded conscience. And of course, its final destination is the judgment of hell. And so the psalmist says that the happy person or the blessed person is first marked by avoiding this path. By avoiding this path. In other words, happiness is first found and it's, it's first developed within us through something negative. Which seems a bit counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? To find happiness by always having your guard up. By always being skeptical and, and resistant of certain people and of certain influences. And that seems counterintuitive to us because in our culture, again, we tend to associate happiness with, with just taking it easy. And with just letting it all hang out. right? Kick your feet up. And enjoy yourself. That, that's the image of happiness in our culture. However, the reality of a fallen world which constantly seeks to grab a hold of us, as well as the reality of our own fallen nature that wants to align itself with the world. These things remind us that if we are to find true joy and true happiness in God, then first we must be proactive in resisting anything else that might grab our affections away from Him. We must resist sin and keep ourselves in a watchful, repentant frame. But that's not all that the psalmist describes here. You see, the blessed man not only resists sin, but he also actively abides in God, and he actively abides in God's law. And so then he goes to bear fruit. And we see that pictured for us in verses 2 and 3. And so this is the, the picture of the way of true blessedness. So this is moving on from what he resists into what uh, the blessed or happy man does. It says, but his delight or his joy is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Now first, when we look at this, I want you to notice uh, the source of blessedness. The source of blessedness. And see there that the source of blessedness in this man's life is the law of the Lord. Now often, as uh, Reformed Christians especially, uh, when we hear that word law, uh, we, we tend to think of the moral law or of the Ten Commandments. And often in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when we're looking at the law-gospel distinction, that's what's in view. Um, how, however, that's not exactly what's in view here, as the word Torah, which is what's translated as law, is actually a reference to the entirety of God's Word as the psalmist had it. And so, the psalmist says that the blessed man is one who delights in God's Word. In both the promises and the precepts. In other words, he doesn't just read it or obey it in a mere outward mechanical fashion. No, this is where he seeks his life. This is where he seeks his joy and his happiness in the Word of God. 
As Psalm 119 and verses 103 says that we sang just before the sermon, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or as Psalm 19 and verse 10 says of the Word of God, it says it's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And keep in mind there that honey was the equivalent of candy back then. It was a luxury. You see, the blessed man sees the Word of God as being more desirous than all the good pleasures of this life. And this is really key to the resistance of sin that we just considered. As I mentioned just a moment ago, all of us, we're all hardwired for happiness. We're going to seek it out one way or another. And so the man who is convinced that it can only be found in God, he will remain on the right path. Because that is where he is convinced that he's ultimately going to find it, even though he may struggle, even though he may stumble on that path. He knows that it can only be found in the Word of God, where the being and the character of the infinite and eternal God is disclosed to his consciousness. And the Spirit for the godly man, the Spirit gives him that inner comprehension, that inner delight in God as he is revealed in Scripture. Think of what Paul says about the eyes of our heart being enlightened in Ephesians or in 1 Corinthians 2, and he talks about how the Spirit, right, gives us a spiritual understanding so that we, we know God and so that we can believe in Him and trust in Him as we receive the Word of God. And you see, even when that inner comprehension and when that inner delight is muted or weakened, even if the Spirit withdraws for a season, which He does sometimes, to test us and strengthen our faith, yet this man doesn't give up and stray from that path. Because again, he is convinced that the Word of God is the only place where he might come to know God and delight in Him. So the blessed man is one who perseveres in meditating on the Word of God. And he doesn't know this just in theory, but again, he acts upon what he knows and delights in. The text says that he meditates on these things both day and night. Now, the word meditate there, it's, it's an interesting word in Hebrew. Uh, it's a reference um, in, in its root, in its etymology, to the gentle growling of a lion or of some other beast. Uh, so, so what does that have to do with, with meditation, you might ask? Uh, well, think about it. Those who study a text and who maybe quietly recite it to themselves, as the Jews would do, uh, they would often make that low growling sound. Especially if it was a room full of people doing that, like at the rabbinic schools. If all of you were here uh, reading the word silently, mouthing it to yourself in this room, there would be that slow rolling grumbling, right? Uh, that's the image of meditation in Hebrew. Uh, this, this whole idea of reading silently in your mind, that's more of a modern thing. Again, back then, those who could read would, would read out loud. And so, uh, this word describes someone who is engaged in a thoughtful reading of Scripture. They are reading with intent. And it says that this person does this day and night. 
In other words, they don't just do it on Sundays or every once in a while, but it marks their entire life. It was said of of John Bunyan, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said of John Bunyan, that if you cut him, he would bleed Bible. That's what the blessed man is like here as he's described in the psalm. And unfortunately, this, this is a practice that's often neglected, isn't it? I know that it's an area I need to grow with all the distractions we have in the modern world. A, a lifestyle of being in the Word, of meditating on it throughout our day and of applying it to our lives. Uh, we spend so much time right, reading books on theology which are good in their proper place and perspective. We spend so much time on social media, which is okay at times. But our reading of Scripture often doesn't compare to how much we give ourselves to these other things. And as the psalmist encourages us here, this ought not be so. Because again, the Word of God is the very means by which God discloses Himself and communicates Himself to us so that we might be blessed so that we might be happy in him as Jesus himself says in John 15 7 if you'll turn there with me again uh, John 15 7 just think of this text in parallel to Psalm 1 as our Lord says here if you abide in me and my words abide in you You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. You see, our Lord there says that the Word of God is the the means that God uses to form and reform our souls so that we are fit not only for communion with Him, but so that we might also bear fruit and glorify Him. And so that's the second thing that we see there in verse 3. That the blessed man bears fruit from his meditations. He is described as a tree that is planted by the rivers of waters. You know, uh, when you live in the desert for a few years, like I did, uh, you begin to realize how much that we take water for granted. Uh, Even though I was born here, I've been back for six months now, it still amazes me. Um, how I don't need to fight to keep my lawn green, how I don't need to fight to keep my vegetable garden growing, especially with all the rain that we have this year. It's something that you take for granted being here. Out in the high desert, uh, you can water and water, and still certain things will not stay alive. Uh, Back when we were moving across the country this spring, one thing that struck me is how when you move from uh, western Nebraska and, and you're going east, Uh, Things just get greener and greener, especially when you get here to the Great Lakes region. Uh, The foliage and everything gets really thick, of course, because we're surrounded by water. We have a high water table. Everything grows with ease here. Well, that is the picture in our text of those who meditate on the Word. Uh, They are not like a plant growing out in the middle of the desert that's not suited for desert conditions. No, that the secret influence of grace as it's given through the Word and the Spirit, the grace of God coming to them through the Word and the Spirit, this is what causes this man to prosper in all of his circumstances, even in hostile circumstances. He is like a well-watered tree. 
You see, this man does not base his life on his circumstances. He's rooted in something greater than his circumstances. And so he is fit, therefore, for all circumstances. He is a tree that bears fruit in its season. He has stability, unlike the ungodly, because he's planted and rooted in the truths of Scripture and he doesn't move from them. And so though he might go through difficult circumstances, though he might even struggle with things like depression, he yet has a secret tap of joy that keeps him going as he is rooted in the Word of God. You see, this is the manner of life that the psalmist calls us to here. Happiness is not found within within ourselves. Happiness is not found out in the world. It's found only in God and in His Word. And so we are to resist sin and live a life of determined godliness being in the Word of God. However, knowing our frailty, knowing our fickleness, what I just laid out before you could perhaps lead to a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, can't it? Uh, What if I fail at this? Uh, What if I don't attain the status of being a blessed man because I I don't do enough devotions or whatever? Uh, This seems like a, a, a lot of work, and so what if I don't make it? What if I try my best and it's not enough? Well, that brings me then to our final main point, looking at the blessed man's confidence. And that can be found in the last verse there in verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now often at the end of a psalm, you will find a statement like this that's meant to, to reinforce and summarize the truth that was communicated in the psalm. It's sort of like, think of it like the benediction of the psalm. Just like how we give a benediction at the end of the church service, this is like the benediction of the psalm. Verse 6 is what you are to walk away with. The confidence that you are to have as you walk away. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, when when the text refers to the righteous here, uh, this is a reference to those who have been legally declared right before God and before His law. So this is describing the just man, those who have been justified. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the justified. God knows such people and He knows their way. So what does that mean? Well, again, this is where we need to think about Hebrew. Know does not mean just an intellectual knowing. God knows about us. That's talking about an intimate, relational form of knowing, like when Adam knew his wife Eve. Uh, This describes a a covenantal knowing, uh, sort of like the covenant of marriage. And so in reference to God and His people, uh, God knowing the righteous and their way, this refers to Him caring for them and guarding them as they walk the path of faith. He is their faithful husband, who will provide for them and protect them. In other words, God will keep them from stumbling. God will keep them going forward on the path. And so this is the confidence that the psalmist wants to leave you with. That it's God who has brought you on the path. 
And that it's God who will sustain you on the path. Uh, Think of what Paul says in in Romans 8, that I'm sure Pastor Adam will be, Pastor Keener will be getting to in the coming months. Think of what he says there. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's another statement of confidence. If you are in the faith, you are in the faith because God has predestined you to be in the faith and to be conformed to the image of His Son until you are carried forth to glory. That's the same concept here. God will grant perseverance to those whom He has declared righteous in His Son. He knows their way. He is with them and He will carry them through. This is to be your confidence. Yes, you are to strive for holiness. Yes, you are to to fight against sin in the world. But your hope is not to be found in your striving. Your hope is to be found in the power of God and in the faithfulness of God. So how can we know that this is true of us? If God's blessing and keeping of us is uh, dependent upon us being declared righteous by Him, then how can you know that He looks on you in this way? How can you know that God knows your way? Well, this is where the Gospel comes into play. Because in the Gospel, we learn that the righteous, that those who are blessed, are those who have received righteousness and blessing through God in His Son. You see, looking at the big picture of Scripture here, Jesus Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He is the one who resisted the path of sin and temptation. Think of His temptation in the wilderness. And He is the one who who perfectly obeyed the Word of God in our place. In fact, He is the very Word of God made flesh. Uh, Jesus didn't merely meditate upon the Word of God in His humanity, which He did. He had to be taught it. He had to grow in in wisdom and in knowledge, and he he meditated on the written Scriptures and His humanity. But fundamentally, He was the Word made flesh. And yet, not only did He perfectly take this blessed path so that He was without sin, but He also took the curse that is laid out in this psalm, in our place, as it was poured out upon Him at the cross. In other words, Jesus fulfilled this psalm for us by doing what it requires and by taking the curse that it threatens so that the blessing that is promised here is truly yours in Him. It's truly yours in Him. And so if you are in Christ, you are the righteous and you can know that God knows you and blesses you as you walk the path of faith. You are not to seek to be the blessed man by your works. No, you are to seek union with the blessed man and you are to trust in his works as it's been revealed in the Gospel. And so through union with Jesus Christ by faith, you are declared righteous and you are worthy of God's blessing. And then you are made blessed in Him. You are justified and sanctified in Jesus Christ, the blessed man. This is the confidence that you can walk in 
as you seek to obey and follow what the psalmist is teaching here. You see, the blessing of God is ultimately received by faith, not by your works. But that reality is meant to urge you and to encourage you on this path of righteousness and blessedness that's laid out in the psalm. Uh, Don't do what so many do where you go, oh, this psalm's ultimately about Jesus. He fulfilled it, so I have nothing to do with it. No, you are now especially to walk in this way following your Lord. You are to be in the Word. You are to be in prayer, as this psalm implies. Because that's where you meet with Jesus, the blessed man, your King and your God. And you are united to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, being in the Word uh, is not a chore to be completed by us, though it it does involve real striving and and self-discipline, as we have seen. But it's a means of grace that's to be enjoyed by you. Uh, So likewise, you are to resist sin in the world and the devil, as we saw in our first point, because Jesus has already freed you from them. As the end of the last verse says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. In other words, that path of sin that so many want to lure you to, it only ever leads to destruction. And yet if you believe in Christ, you're not headed for destruction. So live like it by turning from the world and by repenting of your sin as you trust in Christ. Dear church, this is the way to true happiness. It's found by faith in Christ and by the firm assurance that we have in Him. It's strengthened by the means of grace as we meditate on the Word day and night. And it's preserved as we resist sin and temptation in the world. These three things are our key to finding true happiness in God and to bearing fruit in Him. Let's now pray together and ask for God's grace to aid us in this. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for giving us the glorious Gospel of Your Son. We thank You for sending Your Son, who is Your eternal Word, made flesh, so that He might perfectly keep the covenant of works so that He might walk in the way of blessedness and persevere to the end, enduring the curse in our place, so that trusting in Him and following in His train, we might attain Your blessing, namely the blessing of eternal life and of union and communion with You in Your Son and by Your Spirit. Lord, we have no other hope than Your Son. It's in Him that we trust. It's in Him that we believe. Lord, grant us that inner sense, that inner conviction, that happiness and blessedness can only be found in Him so that we might seek those things that are above, that we might turn our eyes from the things of earth and keep our eyes fixated at Your right hand where our Savior stands interceding for us, where He is seated in authority, ruling all things for our good and for the glory of Your name. And we pray, Lord, 
that out of that conviction, out of that gospel conviction, we pray that we would be those who follow in the way of Psalm 1. We pray that we would be those who resist the counsel and the path and the seat of the ungodly and the wicked. And that we would be those who commit ourselves to the means of grace, to not only reading the Word, but to chewing on it and meditating it. To to seeing it as being sweeter than honey of the honeycomb. And we pray that we would be a people of prayer, communing with You, as we pray without ceasing through our life. Lord, we pray You'd work these things within us in the week ahead and in our life ahead. And we pray that You would keep us on the straight and narrow. Grant us that vigilance to to not waver to the left and the right. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, who is our confidence. Amen.